0: Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. You might remember that in March, when I was doing the various mysteries of the Rosary for the preservation of our nation, one of the mysteries that I did was the Luminous Mysteries. And I have to admit that I've always kind of favored them. And then A friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, I like the fact that when he wrote to me, he called me Ancient Friend, which I thought was lovely, who is a uh, priest actually in the SSPX, way, way far from here in New Zealand, I believe, told me about the objections by traditional Catholics to the Luminous Mysteries being used at all. And I said at the time that what I would probably do is sometime down the road, I would talk about that distinction, that criticism from my perspective and your perspective as just an ordinary Catholic trying to muddle through all of these differences and changes and arguments about tradition versus the modernization of the liturgy and its impact on Catholic theology, spirituality, all of that. So an opportunity has sort of presented itself uh, this last week in terms of my rethinking about putting a discussion or my observations about the problem on this podcast. One of which was that in a mass uh, recently, Pope Francis actually put into use a change of the Our Father, though you know it, let me just go through it so you hear the whole thing. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So that was changed by the Pope, and this is not totally new because it was in discussion a couple of years ago and then at least in my mind it sort of died out and nobody seemed to pay attention at least in parishes but what the pope did is he changed lead us not into temptation to and do not abandon us into temptation and then a couple of days ago just the day before yesterday i think the former editor of the jesuit magazine america a father reese apparently made a rather dramatic pronouncement that young people should not be allowed to go to the Extraordinary Form Mass, which of course was the only Mass prior to 1962. And I say the changes wrought by Vatican II because some of the changes that we have inherited really weren't part of Vatican II, even though we were given to understand that they were. the key things about the faith were not changed, but somehow or another, that's the idea people got, that everything had changed. I'm not sure what they thought it changed to, but it almost seems as if the Catholic Church wasn't supposed to be the Catholic Church any longer, in the minds of many people who remained in the nominal Catholic Church. So let me talk about these three related events, and then see if I can come to a conclusion which I'm sort of trending towards, surprisingly in some ways, even though I tend toward conservatism, I've been very used to being part of the Novus Ordo. But in any case, before I get to any thoughts and conclusions and ask you for yours, it would be nice if you did them in the written comments uh, in the website the podbean.com uh, to tell me what you think, or you can email me separately, those of you who have my emails. But I want to kind of go through each of the things starting with the Luminous Mysteries because that was the one that I first became seriously aware of and what the objection appears to be and uh, then go down through the Our Father and the Pope's uh, changes. And um, some people would say the Pope's unilateral changes that were not ex cathedra and then uh, go to the Thomas Rees uh, article on the, almost as if he's terrified of something about the traditional mass. The story is that the rosary has its source in St. Dominic de Guzman. The white-robed men that you see and women who are nuns were founded by St. Dominic. Concurrent with the founding of the Dominicans, there was a heresy going abroad uh, Propagated by the Albigensis. I'm not sure I'm saying that right Albigensis. I think it's the Albigensis heresy and Basically their thing as over the history of the Catholic Church. There have been many heresies was that the incarnation was something they denied they rejected some of the church's sacraments and they were Uh, and they were highly secular, which sounds like, whoa, sounds like our time, doesn't it? And somewhere in there, around the year, say, 1214, St. Dominic had a vision of the Virgin Mary, which somewhat sealed the deal. But it's a tradition, because as time went on, another guy, um, Alan de la Roche, in the 15th century, after Dominic died, claimed that Dominic was given the rosary by the Blessed Virgin. You've heard of Saint Louis-Marie de Montfort, who was one of the promoters of the rosary. And then there have been a number of popes who also were advocates of the rosary. And over the years, some people say, there have been additional evolutions to the rosary. For example, the Fatima Prayer which was the result of the appearance of Our Lady at Fatima in 1917 and the miracles that accompanied it. There is another aspect which creates in the minds of many a sense of firmness about the rosary in terms of the sorrowful, the glorious, and the joyful mysteries. And that is the number 150, which is the number of psalms in the Bible the number of Hail Marys in the traditional rosary is also 150. Among the things that St. John Paul II said in his edition of the Luminous Mysteries was the following. I believe, however, that to bring out fully the Christological depth of the rosary, it would be suitable to make an addition to the traditional pattern which, while left to the freedom of individuals and communities, could broaden it to include the mysteries of Christ's public ministry between his baptism and his passion. In the course of those mysteries, we contemplate important aspects of the person of Christ as the definitive revelation of God. Declared the beloved Son of the Father at the baptism in the Jordan, Christ is the one who announces the coming of the kingdom, bears witness to it in his works, and proclaims its demands. It is during the years of his public ministry that the mystery of christ is most evidently a mystery of light while i am in the world i am the light of the world consequently for the rosary to become more fully a compendium of the gospel it is fitting to add following reflection on the incarnation and the hidden life of christ the joyful mysteries and before focusing on the sufferings of his passion the sorrowful mysteries and the triumph of his resurrection the glorious mysteries a meditation on certain particularly significant moments in his public ministry, The Mysteries of Light. This addition of these new mysteries, without prejudice to any essential aspect of the prayer's traditional format, is meant to give it fresh life and to enkindle renewed interest in the rosary's place within Christian spirituality as a true doorway to the depths of the heart of Christ, ocean of joy and of light, of suffering and of glory. And that's from Rosarium Virginis Mariae So what has, let's call them traditionalists, uh, compared to, say, the modernists, uh, the post-Vatican II folks, what they are up in arms about is that if it was given to St. Dominic and to uh, Blessed Roche, why should anyone, Pope or otherwise, change that? Well, part of the problem, I think, is that you have to be required to believe that that's how the Rosary began, that it was in fact to St. Dominic and Blessed Alan Roche who promoted it after the death of St. Dominic, that this is a matter of faith that you cannot deviate from, or is it a tradition which has great foundation but does not necessarily prevent an addition? Because what the Pope said was not to detract from the original version. This is something that you could add if you wished to do. Now, as I said, before I knew about this debate, which happened around the time I was doing the Luminous Mysteries during the Easter season, during Lent actually, uh, I loved the Luminous Mysteries and I still do and some of the most powerful experiences, as I've said, I had when I was in Israel related to the luminous mysteries. So like all things in this society, both in the secular society and in the church itself, here's another thing to discombobulate the Catholic faithful. And to be fair to the traditionalists, that discombobulation is part of the problem that they see and which at some level I see as well. You kind of have the same argument here that you have in the secular world about the Constitution, the idea that there's an original interpretation of the Constitution and a living interpretation, an evolution of the Constitution based upon the mores and the culture in which we presently live. but. That's a bit of a problem because we're talking about the unchanging church or the unchanging dogmas of the church. Now, this is not a dogma. So you could say, well, this could evolve, couldn't it? But the traditionalists will point to a certain logic. Why would Our Lady give to Dominic this unfinished version of the rosary that would only get completed by John Paul II many centuries later? Well, I suppose one answer could be that the Holy Spirit moves in the way the Holy Spirit moves and that evolution is, in a sense, the work of the Holy Spirit, the evolution of the soul, the evolution of the person, the evolution of the Church in its conformance to the truths that Jesus Christ gave to us. And then, on the other hand, Pope Leo Thirteenth, a 19th century pope, allegedly closed the book on whether or not this was an evolutionary, or rather that the rosary was in fact received by Saint Dominic. End of story, closed, closed, closed. So we have the constant debate again between the traditionalists and the modernists. What's an ordinary Catholic to do? Now this second issue, as I think I said in the beginning, is not actually all that new either in that the Pope first suggested the change to the Our Father from Lead Us Not Into Temptation to a variation of Abandon Us Not Into Temptation in 2018 or 19. But the reason I got interested in it again in relationship to the Luminous Mysteries was that I happened to see a video of Dr. Taylor Marshall who is a traditionalist uh, with regard to the fact that in a recent Mass the Holy Father actually used the new phrase in Italian. Now, I would be lying if I hadn't said that at some point in my life, I used to wonder about the lead us into temptation, because it seemed a little bit misleading in some way, but it never led to any huge distress on my part, and I don't know that it did for other Catholics either. I suppose it's no more confusing than give us this day our daily bread, which doesn't just mean regular bread it means a whole lot of other things his grace the eucharist his spiritual and material goods that he'll provide everything for us that it's related back to the manna in the desert all of that but i didn't give that much thought either now you might say well pope francis did nothing more than what john paul ii did i don't know if i agree with that this is a far more substantial change because the original translations, the Greek from the Greek, go back so long. And so we're not talking about the 13th or 14th or 15th century. We're talking about right after Christ's resurrection. Actually, we're talking about before he was even crucified when he gave the prayer to the gathered people on the hill, on the beautiful hill. And frankly, given all the other crises in the Catholic Church right now. This hardly seems the place to be worrying about a change. But there you are. The Pope apparently was very concerned about folks getting the idea that God is the tempter. I don't think anybody ever thought that. And I seem to recall that the Lord's Prayer is called the perfect prayer. Eh, Apparently not so much, according to the leader of the Catholic Church on earth, the one who stands in the in the shoes of the fisherman, who follows the first Pope Peter in the line of succession, and who is to preserve the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ transmitted to the people through the centuries. Now in rummaging through literature online about this problem, and I think at the end I'll give some credits to all the things I read, because this was an area in which I really didn't have great prior knowledge so I had to look things up. I was reminded of the fact that Pope Benedict when he was uh, Cardinal Ratzinger did a book on Jesus of Nazareth in which he spent an entire chapter chapter 5 on uh, the Lord's Prayer. Now I knew I had the book somewhere and and I knew I had read at least part of it but it was many years ago and uh, so I went in search of it. I found it on the top shelf, the dusty top shelf of my library in my dining room where I actually tape this program. Oh, excuse me, record. We don't tape anymore. And I can see I underlined up to a page 145 or so, which was before this particular question came up. It's about the Our Father, but I had only just begun to read the chapter. Well, I guess that even though I may not have given too much thought to and lead us not into temptation. Others have, and certainly Pope Benedict did because he starts out at page 160 saying, the way this petition is phrased is shocking for many people, which all goes to prove just how ordinary a Catholic I am if I wasn't really shocked by it. Catechesis is a lifelong event. One has to really knuckle down and and really spend time with the long history of intellectual thought related to the Catholic Church, which is so impressive if one wants to take a look at it. And it's so easily dismissed now by generations who know nothing, don't even know it exists. I don't know enough about it, but I know it exists. When uh, Taylor Marshall gave the translation of the Greek in his video, he used the phrases that To lead in the Greek means to bring or to carry. It it isn't saying that God is tempting anyone. And actually, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, gives two examples that are really, to me, good in terms of why lead makes sense to me, rather than do not abandon us into temptation, because lead seems to me to be a far more nuanced concept than do not abandon the first example he gives at page 161 is actually Christ himself, and he gives us the words of the gospel. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's Matthew 4.1. Temptation comes from the devil. But part of Jesus' messianic task is to withstand the great temptations that have led man away from God and continue to do so. As we have seen, Jesus must suffer through these temptations to the point of dying on the cross, which is how he opens the way of redemption for us thus it is not only after his death but already by his death and during his whole life that jesus descends into hell as it were into the domain of our temptation and defeats in order to take us by the hand and carry us upward i don't know if this is even vaguely proper theology but in a sense you could say that jesus was led toward temptation but and he was tempted but he withstood the test so Cardinal Rassinger, Pope Benedict, quotes the letter to the Hebrews, which he says, For because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And then he adds, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus was led by the Spirit to go to the mountain where, temptation awaited him. And then there is Job. Yes, I know Job, you will say, didn't actually exist, but it goes to the issue of this led into temptation. Job was a righteous man, and the devil talked to God and basically said that it was easy for Job to be a good man because he had everything. What happens if you take everything away from him? About Job Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, says, In order to mature, in order to make real progress on the path leading from a superficial piety into profound oneness with God's will, man needs to be tried. Just as the juice of the grape has to ferment in order to become a fine wine, so too man needs purifications and transformations. They are dangerous for him because they present an opportunity for him to fall. And yet they are indispensable as paths on which he comes to himself and to God. So now the Pope goes to the interpretation in context of and lead us not into temptation. And he says, when we pray it, we are saying to God, I know that I need trials so that my nature can be purified. When you decide to send me these trials, when you give evil some room to maneuver, as you did with Job, then please remember that my strength goes only so far. Don't overestimate my capacity. Don't set too wide the boundaries within which I may be tempted and be close to me with your protecting hand when it becomes too much for me. And he concludes on this segment of the Our Father. When we pray the sixth petition, and that's the other thing, I'm jumping around here, I know, but when one looks at the Our Father, the idea is to look at its various petitions and the fact that all sections are related to each of the other sections. Anyway, going back to his conclusion, when we pray the sixth petition of the Our Father, we must therefore on one hand be ready to take upon ourselves the burden of trials that is meted out to us. On the other hand, the object of the petition is to ask God not to mete out more than we can bear, not to let us slip from his hands. We make this prayer in the trustful certainty that St. Paul has articulated for us. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This just occurs to me that, in a way, the new translation proposed by the current Pope is actually less accurate than the original interpretation from the Greek, or rather the original translation from the Greek and its interpretation, because to say that we're praying that God not abandon us is contradictory to the reality of God in our relationship with him. He never abandons us in truth. And in fact, even if we feel as if he does, he never has abandoned us. So asking him not to do what he would never do seems troublesome to me. It admits of the possibility that God can abandon us. And wasn't that dealt with when Christ yelled, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hadn't forsaken him, that's the fact. It felt like he had, but he had not. Anyway, my problem with this activity of the substitution of words is a bit more than I would with the addition of a luminous mystery to the rosary, because nothing was actually taken away from the rosary. Here something very significant is taken away and replaced, and supersedes A lot of years in Catholic history. Now, since apparently the Pope had been talking about this since at least 2018 or 19, one would hope that there were studies done, uh, theological conferences, uh, language conferences, interpretations, but I have to tell you, I don't get that impression. It just seems somewhat cavalier to make the change. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be saying this. I'm, I'm just... A lay person, and <laughs> he's the pope. But on the other hand, that's what it feels like, and that kind of goes to the next segment of of my concern, which is the uh, article or the statement by Thomas Reese that basically sounds the alarm at people running, particularly during this COVID period, to the traditional Latin mass, and the call to basically eradicate that liturgy at some point, except for old people who don't know any better. Now, I got to tell you, that one really gets to me because as an old person who has stuck with the Novus Ordo, as I previously have mentioned, um, this sort of gets me to the idea that maybe I want to run to the traditional Mass. I do recommend that you listen to Taylor Marsher in terms of getting a perspective in terms of what I'm babbling about. And obviously he's been doing podcasts a lot longer than i have and and i don't always agree with him actually i don't always agree with everybody and there's a lot of people i don't agree with his observations and his reactions make a lot of sense to me and particularly i agree with him more since i read the segment by uh thomas reese on april 13th 2021 i think it's in his blog, The Future of Catholic Liturgical Reform. And Taylor Marshall did point out that he starts out with a very dramatic line intended to grab attention, which is other than sex, nothing is more heatedly debated by Catholics than the liturgy. Well, I actually have something about the second sentence that really kind of disturbs me. Everyone has strong opinions based on years of personal experience that's not the only basis upon which people have strong opinions. A lot of people have strong opinions based upon things that they have read, the history of the Catholic Church, the traditions, the magisterium, the Bible, all of that. So it's not just strong opinion based on personal experience. I said that one of the things about my experience, speaking of personal experience of Vatican II, is that what I was given to understand about the changes wrought by Vatican II were not necessarily the ones actually wrought by Vatican II, but by those who gave us the impressions that certain things had changed. Like for example, you don't have to restrict yourself from eating meat on Friday. Actually, that discipline never has left. Now, it left me because I was given that impression myself, and of course I went through that phase where I left the church. I lapsed from the faith, and when I came back, I wasn't educated in any of this because I had been given to understand what everybody else was given to understand by folks who were misinterpreting Vatican II. And because I was raised to accept the authority of priests and bishops, One accepted what a priest and bishop said, even where it was wrong. That's something that maturing teaches you is that people in authority don't necessarily always give you the truth or the correct interpretation. Now, it is somewhat true that there was a suppression of the Tridentine Mass after Vatican II, but not because the Tridentine Mass was no longer allowed. In fact, it wasn't ever abrogated. But again, along with the Vatican II, sort of let's change everything and not worry about what we're changing until after we change it and not worry about what we're replacing it with. They sort of let it go. But it wasn't really gone. It was always there. And popes like Benedict, like John Paul II, made it clear that it was still there. They didn't take anything away from the bishops. I think the bishops and priests abrogated the reality of Vatican II in many ways. So this line, Benedict took away the bishop's authority and mandated that any priest could celebrate the Tridentine Mass whenever he pleased. I have trouble with that. Benedict would have more authority than the bishops, even in the College of Cardinals and the collegiality. Let's put it in secular terms. Isn't he the boss, at least in terms of the institutional church? And then, as Taylor Marshall pointed out when he read this, this is an absolutely remarkable statement. The church needs to be clear that it wants the unreformed liturgy to disappear and will only allow it out of pastoral kindness to older people who do not understand the need for change. Children and young people should not be allowed to attend such masses. This just proves what is also true in the secular realm is that it's always about power with human beings, always about power. If someone has the power, they will enforce their will over others. Not what is objectively true, but their will. And that is terrifying when it comes from within the church. A question. If change is the order of things and if ecumenism is so dearly important such that we all get together under one umbrella but not the Catholic Church as the umbrella, other things as the umbrella, why are we bothering to continue to believe and to insist upon the real presence? Why bother? Change! Change! Everything must change to become part of the culture and the culture simply doesn't believe this stuff. It's almost like Our own leaders are trying to drive us out of the church with all this contradiction, this double speak, the same stuff we're getting in the secular world, we're getting in within the church. No wonder people are running to the traditional liturgy. And boy, if you want to see an actual expression of asking the Lord not to lead us into temptation, what's going on right now within the Catholic church sure seems to be the test. A test, big test, the test, I don't know which one it is. I've told you I've had reservations about the traditional Latin Mass, not about the Mass itself, but although a little bit because I told you that I liked the fact that the people were brought in rather than just being part of the audience. But I've also come to appreciate the argument that it's not about me, it's about God. And so I I'm beginning to understand the resistance that the traditional Latin mass folk have to this constant indication of change for everything, and not really well considered, nor considered in light of the history of the church, or its very dogma, or its liturgy. And well, because we're talking about human beings, people in the traditional Latin parishes have their issues, like everyone else, a sort of a sense of, I'm better than them. Not everybody, obviously. Many people are wonderful and just the same as the people in the Novus Ordo will say, oh, those crazy traditional folk. So there's a certain matter of human nature, you know, being nasty, being sinful in its relationship with each of the sides in this. But I got to also say, I want my church to be counter-cultural. I don't want us becoming a part of this society, which, quite frankly, looks to me like it's dying apace. So, as always, at the end of these programs, I think to myself, or say to you, what to do, what to do? Well, I have to say that while I will continue in my parish, because it tends toward a respectful novus ordo approach, and I've always been comfortable there, that it's time perhaps for me to look at the, say, an FSSP parish and maybe to straddle the two for a while until I can really make a considered decision as to where I should be. I have a feeling that a lot of others are doing the same thing as I am, staying at my parish where we're sort of between the guitar mass and the changing everything, all the words of the Eucharistic prayer or having dances on the altar and the more traditional, I'm in between. I guess I've been in the via media, something that Cardinal Newman used to talk about in relationship to his faith and the Anglican approach to faith. So I'm kind of having the same thing right now. I've been trotting the via media for many, many, many years in terms of my return to my faith in say 1983 is when I came back. And it worked for a long, long time. But I'm not sure that given what's happening in our society and what's happening within the church that seems to be completely co-opted by our society, at least the institutional church, the people of the church, obviously Jesus Christ is the church and we are the body of Christ. But in terms of daily activity, makes one pause as to maybe the time is coming to join other Catholic brothers and sisters at a traditional Latin Mass, the TLM. Don't worry if anybody's worried. I don't think anybody is. I don't make these decisions quickly, so it could be years. But I don't know. Things are heating up out there. I might get pushed. I feel a light a fire under me right now so some of the articles on the net that i looked at to help me give some background in all these debates were with regard to the rosary an article called where did the rosary originate by d.d emmons e or emmons e-m-m-o-n-s uh traditional roman catholic thoughts there's no oh there's a date may 30th 2014 and uh, that was related to The Luminous Mysteries and Why You Should Dump Them. And then there was an October 26, 2017 article on Our Father, The Lord's Prayer by Father William Saunders. Uh, an undated, at least I can't find it, uh, The Luminous Mysteries, Novelty Clashes with Tradition, Attila S. I'm gonna get this name wrong, Gumares. An article in Catholic Lenses at patheos.com Pope Francis, Our Father Should Say, Abandon Us Not When in Temptation, December 11, 2018, by Father Matthew Schneider. Opposition Grows to Pope Francis's Push for Change to the Our Father, from LifeSite News, December 19, 2018. Um, crux, I don't see a date. It's two years ago, it says on the, on the paper here, so figure someplace around 2019, 2020. Carol Glatz, Satan, not God, tricks people with temptation, Pope says. Do not abandon temptation. I think it means do not abandon us into temptation. November 5th, 2019 article written by Andrew Mayon in Catholic Journal. And then finally, the article by Father Thomas Reese, Signs of the Times, from the Religion News Service, The Future of Catholic Liturgical Reform. April 13th, 2021. And so ends another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me, on another huge subject that can't possibly be done in this short time, but something to perhaps cause you to do a little reading, do a little consideration, and um, something just food for thought. And if you do have some thoughts, please put them in the comments section at podbean.com. Let me know what you think. And even if you don't agree, that's okay. I don't think anybody agrees with anybody these days right now. I wish we did. It would be a lot easier for all of us. In any case, if you also like the show, hit favorite, and I will see you or hear from you or you will hear from me next week.